Good morning, church, and happy Lunar New Year. I invite you guys to pull out your Bibles as we'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible, it is on page 952. Now let's stand together as we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and for the opportunity that we have to be able to gather as a people of God. We recognize the power of your word and its ability to transform our lives. And so we ask that as it goes out, that it would not return void, but that it would indeed accomplish that which you purpose. And we ask that you would do it now by your grace. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a person who has studied human intelligence says that human beings don't think very well. Who is this guy to say that human beings don't think very well? Well, his name is Daniel Kahneman. He is a psychologist and a Nobel Peace Prize winning economist. He wrote a best-selling book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And in an interview with Time Magazine, he comments that people don't think as well as they should. So let me read you what he said. He says this, We are normally blind about our own blindness. We're generally overconfident in our opinion, in our impressions and judgment. We exaggerate how noble the world is. What psychology and behavioral economics have shown is that people don't think very carefully. They're influenced by all sorts of superficial things in their decision-making, and they procrastinate and don't read the small print. So in other words, he's saying that we should be aware of our shortcomings in our ability to think. And if people don't think as well as we expect, then it shouldn't surprise us that an over-reliance on human wisdom and human thinking within the church 
could potentially cause division. It could potentially cause conflict. Now, you may be asking, well, what are examples of human wisdom operating within the church? Well, let me give you some hypotheticals. Human wisdom says, well, this person serves on the management team of his company. He oversees million-dollar budgets. He directs various teams. Therefore, he is the ideal candidate to serve on the leadership of our church. But no one ever evaluated his character. He could be overbearing. He could be demanding. He could be arrogant. And if this person serves on the leadership of the church, then he could cause conflict and division from leadership all the way down. Let me give you another example. We desire to grow our church. We desire to see people reached with the gospel. And this might prompt us to go online to look for church growth strategies. And if you search on Amazon then you, or a local Christian bookstore, then you will find many books promoting strategies to grow your church. But many fail to realize that some of these strategies that are promoted, that are being spread, apply to certain contexts that are often different than our own. And when we try to adopt these strategies, it could cause conflict, it could cause division, it could cause friction, because our context ultimately is different. And I could go on, but I hope you get the picture. Now, I'm not saying that leadership skills or professional skills are bad, and I'm not saying that strategies to grow your church are bad either. What I'm trying to say is that we should be cautious of relying on these things too much, that we should be critical of an over-reliance on human thinking. Otherwise, an over-reliance on human wisdom, an over-reliance on human thinking could cause division within a church. Now, we don't want division in a church, so then how do we pursue unity? How does a church, including our own, pursue oneness? Unity within the church requires God's wisdom. Well, then this prompts the question, what is God's wisdom that unifies the church? How does a wise God bring together people within the church? How does a wise God, what does he do to join people together within the church? And what is this wisdom? And so to answer this question, we'll turn to the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Uh, this city of Corinth resembled a lot of the metropolitan cities of today. New York, San Francisco, Shanghai, London, Hong Kong, Houston. There's a diverse population that lived in Corinth, Jews, Greeks, Romans. The city was known for its sophistication, for its intelligence, for its wisdom. And they knew how to think. But the Corinthians church's overemphasis on human reason and logic over God's wisdom led to division within the church. And this led the Corinthians to pledge their allegiance, their loyalty to different teachers, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, Christ, and it sowed seeds of division. And when the news of this reaches the ears of the Apostle Paul, it prompted him to write what we have in our Bibles, 1 Corinthians. And so if you're not there already, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. Thank you, Brian, for this morning's scripture reading. Appreciate it. Again, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So in this morning's text, in this morning's section of scripture, we're going to see two ways that God displays his wisdom. 
two ways that God exhibits his wiseness. And these two displays, these two exhibitions, show us God's wisdom and how it unifies and brings together the church. So let's talk about the first display of God's wisdom. The first display of God's wisdom is this, that God displays his wisdom through a foolish message. That God makes known his wisdom through a message that doesn't quite make sense to people. It seems to be preposterous. It is a message that some might call scandalous, yet it is this message, this proclamation that shows off God's wisdom because no one would have ever come up or made up such a message, that God displays his wisdom through a foolish message. And we see this in the first section of this morning's text where Paul is describing how God in his wisdom saved the Corinthians through this same foolish message. And he confronts their pride and in their thinking by saying, don't you remember the message that saved you? It's that message that seems so illogical that no rational person would have dreamt it up. And who you are determines how you understand the message of God. As someone once said, a great many truths depend on one's point of view. So Paul understood that one's spiritual state determines how you view God's message. And we see this specifically in verse 18. Verse 18 says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now first, I want us to think about the word of the cross. It happens here in the first half of the verse. The NIV translated, translates it as the message of the cross, but a better way to understand that phrase is to understand it as proclamation. So what does Jesus dying on the cross proclaim? What does it actually say? And we'll get into this as we go into today's message. Because the spiritually dead view the proclamation of the cross differently. What do they see? What do the perishing, when they look at the cross, what do they perceive? What does an unbeliever see? They see tragedy. A fine religious leader killed. A good moral teacher that the Roman authorities crucified, a blasphemer who claimed to be God deserving death. But then the question is, when we see the proclamation of the cross, when we see the cross for those who are spiritually alive, what do they see? Well, the spiritually alive view the proclamation of the cross as God's power. They see God using human wickedness to accomplish salvation for our sin. That when a believer looks at the cross, they see a savior. They see a substitute. The one who died for my sins so that I could be restored to God. They see the son of God. So what do you see? How do you perceive the proclamation of the cross? What do you see? How you perceive the cross reveals your spiritual state. Now, Paul recognizes that the proclamation of the cross fulfills what God promised long ago through the writing of Isaiah, that God would destroy human wisdom. Uh, look at verse 19. There's a quotation or citation here. It says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now, Isaiah wrote these words long ago. 
to warn the leaders of Judah that God would thwart their wise plan to ally themselves with the Egyptians to ward off the Assyrian threat. But it's their decision to actually ally with the Egyptians that causes the Assyrians to invade and to come into the land of Judah. But Paul also sees that these words are being fulfilled through Christ's work on the cross as well, because no one ever expected that God would use such a painful form of torture to actually save people from spiritual torment. Now, through the cross, God makes foolish the wisdom of the world, but he uses the foolishness of preaching to save the lost. He makes foolish the wisdom of the world while using the foolishness of preaching to save people. Now, what makes the cross foolish? What makes the cross of Christ something that seems scandalous? It's because no one would have ever expected it. No one would have ever expected that God would actually save people through Jesus dying on the cross. Uh, look at verse 20. We'll see three rhetorical questions asked here. It says in verse 20, Who is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Now, in this first half of this verse, in verse 20, there are three classes of people mentioned. You have the sage or the philosophers of the age who in their wisdom would have never predicted the cross. And then you also have the scribe, the religious leader of the Jewish people, and they would have expected a Messiah, but they expected a conquering Messiah, not a suffering, dying Messiah. And then you have the debater of the age, a person who is skilled in rhetoric, a trained speaker, and they would never have thought of using a symbol of death in their communication to persuade someone to believe in God. All these professional experts would never imagine God saving sinners through Christ's work on the cross. So it should not surprise us when we have philosophers, thinkers, even certain theologians or even influences of our day who can't make sense of the cross either. And so this prompts the last question in verse 20. Paul asks, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And he has. Now, why does Paul emphasize the wisdom of God in contrast to the wisdom of the world? It's because the wisdom of the world can't save people. Human wisdom cannot save the lost. Now, before I continue, I do want to make a point of clarification. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, does that mean we should not pursue wisdom? I mean, after all, the Bible has a genre by wisdom literature. You have books like Proverbs, Psalms, Job, Ecclesiastes. Does that mean we should avoid the content of these books? But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is making the argument that wisdom that finds its foundation in human reasoning in the world is void of God and has no benefit. That the wisdom found in the Bible is the wisdom that accords with how God designed all creation and therefore it should be followed. Therefore, if you look at verse 20, Paul qualifies the word wisdom. He says, wisdom of the world, wisdom that finds its source in the world. Okay, so let's circle back and let's talk about why this humanly wisdom cannot save. Look at the very first half of verse 21. It says this, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. 
Now, God designed the world so that humanity cannot discover a relationship with God apart from his help, apart from his intervention. Now, yes, God may have put hints of himself in all creation. One might look up at the stars and wonder, what kind of being could have created the cosmos? Or one might look at the complexities of creation, and they may ask the question, how can all these variables be so finely tuned so that life could exist on Earth? Now, while the answer to these questions might lead someone to think there is probably a divine being out there, you cannot derive through experiments or thought who this being is. You cannot, through trial and error, discover that there is a wise God who loves you so that he sent his son to die for your sins and give you eternal life. This requires divine revelation. It requires God to reveal himself and his plan for salvation. This is divine wisdom. And only divine wisdom can save lost people. Look at the last half of verse 21. It says, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now notice the phrase, what we preach. That phrase means that Paul is highlighting it's the content of the proclamation, not the delivery, that it's important. It's more important about what you say rather than how you say it. And what is the content of our proclamation? It's what God has revealed. That God has revealed this, that a sinful humanity rebelled against the rule of God and it deserved to experience eternal separation from God in the form of conscious eternal torment. But by the grace of God, he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. And if that's not enough, the perfect life that Jesus lived is now our life. And we know this to be true because Jesus rose from the dead. This is the content of the message that saved us. And it applies in so many aspects of our lives. For those of us who struggle with anxiety, the gospel says God will take care of you. That if he could take care of your greatest need, your sin then he will take care of your other needs. If you struggle with anger because things don't go your way, then you know that when things didn't go Jesus' way, he deferred to the will of the Father and procured salvation for you. Should you still feel angry? That this foolish message of a Savior dying on the cross saves us from sin and also the woes of this world. But it doesn't make sense to people. It seems illogical that preaching the cross is foolish because it makes no sense to the perishing. And Paul now explains why it does not make sense. Why do non-believers have such a hard time believing in the proclamation of the cross? Now, people in the first century looked at different things for salvation. Now, Paul separated the people of the world into two categories. You had the Jews and also the non-Jews, also known as the Gentiles. And each group looked for different things. Look at verse 22. It says this, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. So the Jews looked for signs. They expected a Messiah, 
a Messiah who had performed great signs, maybe calling down hail to destroy the Romans. Maybe they expected fire coming down to consume an altar. And they wanted a Messiah, a Savior, that conformed with what they expected, who would do the signs that they wanted to validate their belief in him. So that every time Jesus performed a miracle or a sign, it failed to convince the religious leaders because Jesus didn't do what they wanted. Now, the Greeks then, the Gentiles, they look for wisdom. They wanted someone who would be able to explain to them with compelling logic and reason the way to salvation. But when Jesus talked about crazy things like being from heaven, eating his flesh, drinking his blood, it made no sense to them. It didn't seem logical. Now, not only did Jesus not make sense to them, the cross itself was scandalous, that the crucified Christ is scandalous to everyone. Look at verse 23. Paul writes, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Now, why do the Jews not believe that their Messiah would be hung on a cross? It's because if you read the Old Testament, it says anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. So the crucifixion of Christ doesn't make sense because why would their Messiah be cursed? And then Christ didn't make sense to the Gentiles because the authorities only reserve, reserve crucifixion for the most serious of crimes. It is reserved for state criminals. So how could a terrorist save people from sin? The cross fails to make sense. It does not compute. It does not compile. It surprises. It befuddles. But to believers, the message of the cross displays power and the wisdom of God. Because look at verse 24, that these two groups, if they are called, what happens? Verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That Christ crucified demonstrates the power of God and the wisdom of God. So let's look at these two phrases, power of God and wisdom of God. First, the power of God. Now we think of power, we think of force. Our cars have horsepower that propels them forward. Generators provide power so that when we flip on our light switches, lights come on at home. But the word power does not refer to force here. The word power refers to competency. It refers to ability. So think about this. The President of the United States has the power, the ability to deploy the military against our adversaries. A programmer has the power to write code that enables us to monitor a person's glucose levels. A teacher has the power to issue detention to any unruly student. It is about competency. So if that's the case, if power is talking about competency, then only God can utilize and has the ability and the competency to do, use something as ugly as the cross to save people. Now let's think about wisdom, the wisdom of God. Wisdom refers to skill. 
the ability to do something. Now, only God has the skill to be able to manipulate all the events of history, such as preserving the line of Abraham in the book of Genesis, so that through him the seed could come to save the world, that God would rescue the Israelites from Egypt to establish a nation. He would preserve the seed of David through conflicts until the day that Jesus could be born to accomplish his salvific work. That only God has the skill, the ability to manipulate all the events of history to accomplish salvation. And so that we as believers see that God is far more able, he has more ability, as well as skill than anyone that we potentially know. That's why the foolishness of God and the weakness of God is far greater than the wisdom of man and the strength of man. Look at verse 25. It says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So then what is the implication for our unity? If we know that we are a people united by a foolish message, how does that help us? We need to remember and recall this foolish message that unites us, especially when the wisdom of the world tempts us to conflict towards division, that we are to recall and to remember what is fundamental, that we are to focus on the message of the cross, that the wisdom of the world says to you, hey, I worked hard to earn my salary, and I can use it however I want, but the message of the cross says God has been generous towards you through his salvific work, so you should be generous towards others. The wisdom of the world says we need to help, we need to be able to help people see how the Bible gives them better friendships, higher self-esteem, peace, while avoiding uncomfortable topics like sin. But the foolish message of the cross says that sin caused Jesus to die for us. The wisdom of the world says we need to look out for ourselves. But the message of the cross says that God served us by saving us so we should go serve others. That we are to remember the message, the foolish message of the cross when we feel tempted to follow the wisdom of the world and the foolish message of the cross ultimately is God's wisdom. And that's the first way that God displays his wisdom, a foolish message. So let's move on to the second way that God displays his wisdom. That God displays his wisdom by saving an unlikely people. That he saves a people no one would have expected. He rescues a community of the undesirables, a community of outcasts. He redeems a people that people think are unredeemable. That God displays his wisdom by saving an unlikely people. And Paul describes how God saves this unlikely people to display his wisdom. And Paul takes them on a trip down memory lane. He recalls their story. And as they think about their story, it is nothing to brag about. It's nothing that you would post on social media. It is not Instagram worthy or even TikTok worthy. It, they were no one special. And why does Paul do this? Paul reminds them of their former state that it's nothing to brag about because God uses the weak to shame the wise and the strong. Look at verse 26. It says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So Paul 
notes three qualities of these Corinthians. They were not wise. That means they had an intelligence no one would brag about. They were not powerful. They did not have much influence. They were not of noble birth. This means that they were not born into a rich inheritance. They had no money. Now, for those of you who read through the book of Jeremiah or ever studied it or are going to our Sunday school class, this should all sound very familiar because you're thinking, I think Jeremiah wrote about this, specifically in chapter 9, verse 23, where he says, Let the wise man not boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man or strong man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. And Paul probably had Jeremiah in mind when he thought about the background of the Corinthians and applied it to them. Now, Paul continues in verse 27, and he writes this, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Now note the word chose. It's repeated three times in the text. It recurs two times in verse 27, and then it occurs one more time in verse 28. And that there is an emphasis there is a highlighting of that word because God chose the Corinthians specifically to be his people despite their shortcomings. Despite a resume that was poor, he intentionally chose them. And these verses show that the members of the Corinthian church, they were all not the same. They were not homogenous. They were, came from all types of socioeconomic backgrounds, and they came from such different backgrounds that people even criticize the church. Uh, hear the words of a person named Celsus from the first century at his description of the church. He says this, their injunctions are like this, let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near. For these abilities are thought by us to be evil. But as for anyone ignorant, anyone stupid, anyone uneducated, anyone who is a child, let him come boldly by the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God. They show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, and only slaves, women, and children. These are the people that others saw entering into the church. A people who are diverse, but a people who are unlikely. Now, this applies to our church as well. Now, you guys aren't stupid, but I'm, I want to say is that we are a diverse group of people, people from different backgrounds. I mean, some of you were born here in the United States. Others of you were born in other countries. Some of you grew up here in Texas. Other of you grew up in other states. Some of you have only been here for three months. Others of you have been here for 30 plus years. We are all in different life stages. We have kids, we have youth, we have teenagers. We have young adults, college students, young married, parents of young children, parents of teenagers, empty nesters. And in light of the gospel, the gospel says, there's nothing in our backgrounds to brag about. We don't boast in our education. We don't boast in our family of origin. We don't boast in the positions that we hold. For we as believers recognize that we are weak. We are lost. We struggle with selfish desires that have destructive consequences. No education or job or knowledge could ever save our souls. 
And we all as Christians recognize that only Christ can save us. And we place our hope in him. And we are united by that message. While we have nothing in our backgrounds to boast in, there is one thing, one thing, only one thing that we can brag about. We can boast about the benefits that we have in Christ. And Paul reminds the Corinthians to boast in these benefits, to boast in the benefits that they have in the Lord. And this is why God chose the Corinthians so that they can acknowledge and recognize that all that they have is due to the Lord. Look at verse 29. It says this, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let no one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What are the benefits that the Corinthians have? What are the benefits that not only they have, but we have? There are three benefits that he lays out here. And these benefits are under or describe the wisdom of God. First, there is righteousness, then there is sanctification, then there is redemption. Righteousness refers to our right standing before God, that it is a legal term saying that when God sees us, he sees Christ's perfected work on the cross, and he sees you as righteous. The second thing he talks about is sanctification. It refers to this idea of being set apart, that God does a work through us via the Holy Spirit to make us holy, that he supplies us the resources, the ability to live a life that is pleasing to him. And the last thing that he talks about that is the benefit is redemption. Now, redemption comes from the idea of being purchased. It comes from the context in the first century of the purchase of slaves, that a master would redeem a slave, meaning that he would purchase a slave. But in this context, God is saying that he purchased believers, that we are no longer under the master of sin, but we are now under the master of the Lord. We are now under the mastery of God. And since we have received all these things in the Lord because of what he has done, we should then boast in him. Again, let me read the reference in verse 31. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And this reference, again, comes from Jeremiah chapter 9, specifically in verse 24. And Paul changes the wording a little bit, but the meaning is the same, that if we were to brag about anything, that we should brag about what God has secured for us through the cross. So what is then the implication that God would call us a community of motley individuals? How do we respond? That we are to remember the unlikeliness of our salvation, especially when the temptation to divide arises. That it should prompt us to think back to the events leading to our salvation, that prior to Christ, we all lived according to our own ways. We lived however we wanted. We pursued romantic relationships because we thought it would fulfill our emotional, relational, and physical desires. We found significance in our study. We reveled in our network of friends. I'm talking about real friends, not Facebook friends. But we're talking about that friendship that we found so much significance in. We rationalized that God couldn't exist because if he did, then we recognized that there would be consequences for our decisions. Yet despite this facade, we knew inside that these things left a longing for something that we couldn't explain. We couldn't put a finger on it. And it wasn't until someone explained to us the gospel, helped, told us about God, 
that we understood what we were made to live for. And if none of us contributed to our salvation, then we are saved by sheer grace. We didn't deserve salvation. I mean, we deserve death or even worse. Yet despite our lostness, God saved us. And not only did he save us, but he saved our brother and our sister in Christ as well. And if that's the case, then we should seek to reconcile with them rather than to seek how to break up relationships with them every time a conflict arises. A moment of anger or disagreement should not break up a relationship with a believer whom God has redeemed. It reminds me of something that the Lord taught me long ago about getting along with people that are difficult at church. I think the Lord prompted this thought. You know, Henry, you're going to be spending eternity with these people. You might as well get along with them now. It's that idea that we are all redeemed through the gospel. We are a people who are saved by grace. Now, to summarize, we realize that God's wisdom unites the church, and he displays this wisdom in two ways. First, through a foolish message, and then also by saving an unlikely people. And so we should remember God's wisdom to pursue unity. Now, many of us have heard the national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner, but many of us may not know the story about the flag that inspired Francis Scott Key to write this song. The original flag flew over Fort McHenry, and it measured 42 by 30 feet. It's a huge flag, and it's because it was such a huge flag, it allowed Francis Scott Key to be able to see it from a position 10 miles out to sea, following a night of gunfire. But then the question is, how does such a large flag fly on a pole 189 feet in the air? Well, in the barracks, there are two oak timbers, 8 foot by 8 foot, joined as a cross. And this cross enabled the large flag to fly in the stormy weather without snapping the pole. It provided a firm foundation for the symbol of our national freedom. And so in a similar way, God's wisdom through the cross of Christ provides the foundation for our faith and unity as a church. And so when we always remember that foolish message and how God saved us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we recognize that as a church that there are many things that would divide us, many things that would cause us to enter into conflict. But in those moments, we ask that you would help us to not rely on the wisdom of this world, but from the wisdom that you provide. As we remember the gospel that saved us, that seems so foolish to people, but also even our testimonies, how you would save people like us. And this would prompt us to boast in you but to also pursue unity in our midst. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.